said, you need to pick a psalm, and then she picked Psalm 78. And, uh, and I don't know if you've looked at Psalm 78, but basically it retells all of the, the history of, uh, of the Jews. All the way through, uh, it's it's a short psalm. And she said, well, you don't have to, you know, read all of the history. Well, yeah, you have to. <laughs> so, so I suggested Psalm 111. And uh, I think that's what we'll do. But I'll, I'll just give you the background on Psalm 78, because we're actually going to be talking about this morning. Basically, it's... Uh, Recounting through the Exodus and beyond uh, the journey of the Jews, and that's that's actually germane to what we're looking at this morning, uh, because I believe we're still in John chapter six, but I'll find out here in a minute. <laughs> you guys may have progressed far beyond me here, uh, but let's take a look at uh, Psalm one eleven. Psalm one eleven. And whoever gets there first can read it out. Came 
to redeem us, we were lost. And now we have an opportunity for life, eternal life. And to know Him is to know life. And it's more than just uh, a head knowledge of who He is. It's actually a heart knowledge. So it involves the most fundamental aspect of our being. So y'all have seen me kind of trace backwards from uh, the external destiny that you're currently experiencing back through um, the habits that you keep and the choices that you, or the actions that you take, the choices that you make, the thoughts that you think, all the way back to what you believe and what you value. That's the heart of the issue. And what we find in the world uh, today is that there's uh, a lot of um, false belief or belief in false things, let me put it that way. The belief itself is not false, but the, what is believed in is false. And so we have to understand, we have to challenge those things that we believe and the things that we place value in to find out if they're really true. And that's what John wants us to do. He wants us to be challenged uh, with the truth. And so he's going to uh, reveal those things in Jesus' life that keep pointing back to the truth of God. And we've seen that so far um, as we looked at how uh, John is laid out. Gave you kind of a, an architecture or a, an outline um, that we see that there was the introduction that John added after the fact, the prologue to introduce uh, the whole issue of who Christ is. Then there's the public ministry of Jesus, which is uh, talked about in the context of signs or miracles. And then there's the private ministry of Jesus, that which he, uh, those that know him and believe in him and choose to remain in him, abide in him, um, what does he have for them? What does he want to encourage them with? And we see that private ministry of Jesus. And then we see what he's done for the world. And finally, his closing remarks that John wanted to encourage the church. As we move through uh, the public ministry of Jesus, we saw that um, what John shared was specifically to challenge specific ideas or uh, false beliefs that we would have, beliefs in false things, specifically around institutions and around festivals of Judaism, because he was a Jew, so he wanted to put it in the context that people that he grew up with could understand, but he also went a little bit further than that and put it in a context that the whole world could understand. But he, he uses, because this is what he grew up with, the institutions and festivals of the Jews, because those were the things that made up the religious practice of his day. So if you want to know how, how it is that you abide, right, or remain uh, as a disciple, you need to know how to walk. And usually that walk is made up of religious practice. We all have religious practice in our life. The question is, is it the right religious practice? Right? Is it based on truth? Is it based on uh, revelation from the Spirit of God? That's what we need to be asking ourselves. And I continually, uh, as I study through the Bible, I see uh, what I call the clash of the kingdoms. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And that where we live every day is we wake up and we open our eyes and we're looking out at the kingdom of the world. When you watch the, the news or read the news, when you go to work, when you go to the market, all of these things are the kingdom of the world, presenting things that you should believe and that you should value. And yet we're called to be citizens of a different kingdom. We're called to be citizens of the kingdom of God. So we need to be able to see what God is doing in the world and join him in that. First we need to be a citizen of that kingdom, then we need to act as a kingdom, or an ambassador of that kingdom in this world. And that's what John is going to reveal for us. So we're looking at that, challenging the institutions of Judaism, specifically uh, around concepts of purity and joy in wedding ceremonies. And there was a, a miracle there where Jesus turned water into wine. Then we see that he challenged uh, the institution of the temple, which is the, the place that uh, the Jews would come 
into uh, contact with God. So even though God is not far from us, he's closer to us in our own breath, we have a, an idea that we have to go somewhere to get to God. And that place for the Jews was the temple. It's a place where they would, um, they would bring their sacrifice, they would reflect on their life, they would reflect on who God is, and they would um, come to him at the temple, right? Well, Jesus kind of challenged that. Um, we see that uh, Jesus challenged um, the rabbinical teaching of the day, institution of, of the rabbi. Uh, and, and we see this, let's take it from a Protestant perspective. So um, from a Protestant perspective, what do we do on Sundays? Go to church. Go to church, right? And we think that going to church, that God is going to show up, right? Well, God was never absent. So it's not like he's got to show up. Right? That's the same concept that these people had to get about the temple. Who is God and, and where is he in their life? The same thing is true about teaching. Right? Um, you come to uh, an institution we call here uh, Sunday school. Right? And you expect a certain kind of biblical exposition. And I just recently had to answer... Uh, for my uh, style of biblical exposition in that uh, I was inviting somebody to come to hear Dan Wallace, uh, who's going to be speaking here in a few weeks. And, and I, I encourage you all to come because if you have an opportunity to, to sit and listen to Dan Wallace, he's an exemplary scholar. The, his Greek grammar is the intermediate grammar that's used almost universally in, in seminaries and Bible colleges today. Most of them use his grammar. Some of them use older grammars. But most of them use his. I mean, he's an incredible scholar. He understands the... He's, he's spent his life learning about the, the text. And yet he comes from a particular bias. He comes from uh, Dallas Seminary. And Dallas Seminary is... Um, if you were to categorize theology, which they do, they would say, well, it's more Calvinistic as opposed to Arminian. I don't know if you guys know anything about those terms, but I was speaking to a guy that's very heavily in the Arminian camp, and, uh, and I tend to fall more towards a Calvinistic belief, which is about understanding God choosing us, the election of God, um, that what he's doing for us, and this is a very Protestant thing, and then I had to get into defending the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism and justification and sanctification and all this stuff, right? That's because I have a particular teaching bias. And, I'm, and I'm, what I'm going to tell you is, is that I'm biased. And I'm going to give you my bias. I'm also going to try and help you understand things that are outside of my bias. That's because that's my style. Well, that's a rabbinical teaching. right? Not that I'm a rabbi. But we as Protestants have the same kind of thing. We'll listen to R.C. Sproul or we'll, we'll listen to um, James Kennedy or we'll listen to um, Ron Mel. Right? I mean, people that I like to listen to. Yeah. And, and I'm challenged. Not that I necessarily agree with everything that they say, but I'm challenged when I hear the word of God. Right? That's the same thing that Jesus was challenging in, in that day. He went and challenged the rabbinical teaching. He said, you know, you should know what this is about. This, this goes all the way back to the beginning. You should know what it is that happened. You should know what it is that God's doing. Um, and that it's all about life. And it's life in the spirit. So he challenged uh, the institution of rabbinical teaching. He also uh, challenged the traditions. So we understand, especially if you come from any kind of a Catholic background or, or that uh, orthodox background, the importance of tradition alongside rabbinical teaching. Uh, the two are extremely important. And that tradition has to do with some, some of that bias, but it also has to do with interpretation. And um, so the, the Jews had kind of formularically, form, whatever. Anyway, they came up with a, a code of different <laughs> ways of interpreting the law, right? And uh, to the point where the spirit of the law was completely extinguished in that. Uh, they, their tradition had tromped on what the true meaning of it was. So Jesus 
meets someone outside of the Jewish faith, a Samaritan woman, and challenges tradition, tradition of the Samaritans, but also tradition of the Jews. He brought it into the Jewish context and said, you know, uh, it isn't about Jerusalem, and it isn't about Mount Gerizim. It isn't about where Joseph was buried. It isn't about where Jacob was buried. It's about God. And it's about uh, coming to him in spirit and truth. And so he challenged, Jesus challenged the institutions that we would hold as part of our religious practice. The next thing he took on, uh, or that John recounts, is the festivals. So we were looking at specific festivals. We were looking at, uh, and, and I again apologize for calling the Sabbath a festival. You wouldn't normally think of it that way, but that's what it is. It has that place in our religious practice. Just like coming to church has a place in our religious practice, so the Sabbath and the laws around that had a place in the Jewish practice. And, and the Sabbath, that started sundown on the night before, right? Correct. Yeah, so Sabbath is it, uh, it's from sundown uh, on Friday to sundown on Saturday, which would be the last day of the week. So, um, and that was the seventh day, right? Um, and we, you know, that goes all the way back right, to, Genesis. to Genesis, and it, and there was a, there was a reason for the Sabbath, you know, just like there's a reason for the temple, there's a reason for these things, and we don't want to lose what the meaning is behind that, and what that's pointing us to, because that's how you abide. If you're going to be a disciple and abide in Christ, you need to understand what these things mean. And they probably don't mean the things that we grew up thinking they mean. That's the hard part. It's like, how do you think differently? Well, I don't know. It requires something new coming into my awareness, something new coming into my heart. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what revelation is. Is it something new outside of you that informs you as to who God is? It's God reaching out to you. Well, when we got to uh, chapter 5, um, we looked at the um, festival of the Sabbath. When we got to chapter 6, the whole context of chapter 6 is about um, the Passover. And that's why Psalm 78 would have been very appropriate. Because what happened in the Passover? We could have read it out of Exodus. It's only 17 chapters there. Um, <laughs> what happened in the Passover? Well, we want to remember it. Why do we want to remember the Passover? Why, if you were a Jew, would you want to remember the Passover? What happened? <clears throat> Pardon? It was. It was the salvation of uh, the Jewish nation. Pardon? They were covered by blood. That's right. That there was a specific sacrifice that was done to accomplish that salvation. And you needed to actually be inside Pardon? Yeah, it is cool. It's it's a it's a uh, an object lesson as to what God would do. So we just finished in our Friday night Bible study. We finished going through Genesis, and a couple weeks back when we were retracting through Genesis, and I I I do this kind of summary in the Bible study every week, just like we do it in here, <clears throat> where I go back and tell the story from the beginning all the way over again. And it's kind of like you know you tell it shorter and shorter and shorter each time, and it's finally it's like. Okay, uh, God and God was uh, prayed in man, and man had communion with God, and then there was separation, and you know you got the generations, so generations of the heavens and the earth, generations of Adam, which is death, right? You got generations of Noah, you got, and we're tracing it down, and basically it comes down to God said, "Don't make me come down there," right? That there, the misbehaving children, the creatures, had gotten to the point where their misbehavior their sin, had separated them from God. Well, God actually had to come down here. That was the only way that this could actually, uh, that God could actually redeem us, being lost. And so that was that object lesson in the Passover. That um, God's people had been separated from him. And even though he gave them a promise, he said, this is this is what the kingdom of God holds for you. Mm -hmm. 
that you will actually become a citizen of the kingdom of God and you will have a place that you can call your own, which is mine. And that you will be my people and you will be continually blessed in my presence. Right? That was the promise. That there would be a people, a place, and a presence of God. And that um, even though they were displaced, they ended up, and you read through Genesis, they ended up in Egypt. It was the last place that they should have ended up. But God put them there to hold them until it was the right time. And when it was the right time, the Passover lamb was sacrificed in order to free his people such that they, in belief, could follow him through an incredible deliverance, right? That that deliverance would come through a supernatural parting of the waters. That's what you would see. And that God would be their light by day and their light by night. That you would see the calm in the day and the, the fire at the night and that he led them to the place where they could actually have communion with God, which was Mount Sinai. And they said, man, we can't go up. We're too sinful. And that's the story of the Exodus, right? That's the story of the Passover. That's what's happening here in chapter 6 of John. Rather than going through the 78 verses of, of 70, Psalm 78, I don't know if it's 78 verses, but... Um, 72. Pardon? 72. 72 verses of Psalm 78, which tells you the same story. John just says it in a really simple way. He says in chapter 6, verse 4, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. There you go. He summed it all up in one sentence. But he wants us to understand something about what that, what that meant. What is the Passover? And he he recounts two miracles. The first miracle was feeding miraculously 5,000 people. And this was so miraculous that it's recorded in all of the gospel accounts. This is one of those things that you see in all four accounts. Um, it was so miraculous it changed the, I mean, people reverenced that place because they thought there was something magical about the place that he did this. Um, that he would take um, five barley loaves, which is the food of the poor, and he would take that and multiply it to be bread for all. And he'd take a couple of fish, and he would multiply that to be meat for all, to be nourishment, was just astounding. People didn't know what to make of it, other than they wanted more. Hmm. And then the next miracle that we see, and these are separated by virtually nothing in time. So he, uh, after feeding the people, he sends his disciples off, and who, who were his close friends on a boat, and he retreats to the hill. And the people go home, presumably, or they're camping out there. Um, the next morning, they, they don't know where he is, so they go looking for him. But that night, Jesus actually comes to his disciples walking on the water. So we see uh, two miracles here. A miracle of bread or, or sustenance and a miracle of walking on the water. Miracle on the water. That's that story of the Exodus and the Passover to a people that um, were caught in sin, slaves to sin. God intends to free us. And he's going to do that. Right? And that's what this story is about. So we got to, uh, I think, we got up to verse 26 in chapter 6. <clears throat> and what happens is, is that, well, I'll go back to verse uh, 22 in chapter 6. I'm going to just read a little bit here. So I've been dialog not dialoguing. It says, uh, the next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus did, had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. <clears throat> so this is, you know, they, they woke up in the morning, breaking camp or whatever, um, and they're looking for Jesus. It's like, man, I, I want some more 
want some more food. That was good. There came uh, other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread the Lord had given uh, after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So if we look at where all of that occurred, let's see if I got my maps up here. Okay, so here's the Sea of Galilee, and uh, where all this is happening is, well, let me make it a little bit bigger, I guess that's not very big, let's see if we can get it in the center here. So, Tiberius is down here, there's this nice uh, plain area right in here, Capernaum is up here. Bethsaida is up here, which is the fishing village of John and Andrew and Peter. Uh, and Philip is from there as well. Um, I speculated that the feeding probably occurred here, and he sent his disciples across to Capernaum. Um, some tradition would say that it happened here, and so the people were coming north from Tiberias. Although, based on the storm condition that happened, I would say that it's more likely to have occurred over here because the storms occur on this side of the lake right here. And so for them to be rowing all night not getting anywhere, that's probably where they were. <clears throat> and they were going to Capernaum. And Capernaum was the place where, um, where the synagogue was. It was the city where commerce took place. It's kind of on the crossroads. As you come down from the northern region and you're going to head through Galilee, you'd come through Capernaum and then you'd come through this straight over here, and you'd end up down here in Galilee. Um, it was one of the routes through the area. So Capernaum is kind of like the trade city. And uh, so you'd have trade for fishermen going on there. You'd have trade for people that had other goods. So, uh, and the synagogue is here. So the people come looking for Jesus in Capernaum. So they probably had a good reason for that. That's because he hung out there with the family of Peter. Peter had family there. It was... Uh, wife was uh, either from there or uh, in that area and his mother-in-law was there and so you can, today you can go see Peter, Peter's mother-in-law's house in <laughs> Capernaum um, and so that's, that's what was going on they're headed for that area <clears throat> now they're, bas they're basing that just thinking well this is where Jesus is going to go we're going to get him and we're going to bring him out back and we're going to get some more bread because the people were really impressed by this miracle and it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get there? Or when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So this is about um, the people having, being satiated in some way. They think that their need is met. What... Jesus says, says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, the Father God has set his seal, that is, his approval. In other words, this is the one through whom um, true eternal life would come, true uh, provision or sustenance would come. Real life is in Jesus, that's what he's saying. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may, uh, we may work the works of God? Seems like a reasonable question, right? He's got life, whether it's food from barley loaves and fish or whether it's eternal life, they don't know what that is yet. Um, and they want it. So it's like, well, what can we do in exchange here? What do I have to do in order to get what you have? <clears throat> Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the only work that is acceptable. What, what does that mean? This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That doesn't seem like a work. Who's the he's? So, he's talking about himself. He is talking about himself. Who he, he, God has sent, or so Father has sent him. Right, so you want to uh, understand the, the pronoun here. Believe in him, so that would be um, the one that God has sent, whom God has, he, God has sent. So there is uh, 
a relationship between the father and um, the one that is approved or sent, the one in whom that life truly resides. Now, Jesus was talking about himself. Even though he had told him in the first, in the verse right above, um, that the Son of Man is the one that will give you this. He's the one that has been approved. They still haven't made that connection that that's Jesus. But Jesus isn't hiding anything. I mean, what, what's he going to say? Right? He's going to say, you need to believe that which is God, that which God is revealing to you. Pardon? He says, believe in the one that God has given to us then, right? Right. So, that, and that's, that's actually very important because um, it isn't just a matter of accepting the truth. It's a matter of actually appropriating that truth, of having it be a part of you somehow, right? Well, Jesus knows that they don't quite get that yet. But that's what he's really getting at, is that, um, one, it's recognizing what really is true. What is this all about? It's the truth of God is that there is one whom he has designated in whom is real life, and that that life is eternal, and that you can't just uh, acquiesce to the to the to the factualness of that, you need to actually appropriate that in some way. It needs to become part of you. Because if you just say, yeah, 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 I understand. Jesus is, Jesus is God. Jesus is life. That doesn't, by itself, um, actually get you into that life. You actually have to have that life come into you. Otherwise, you have no life. Right? Isn't it like elsewhere? It says even the demons believe. That's right. Demons, demons will confess that Jesus is Lord, but they don't have that life within them. God is not resident within them. So it's it, this believe in means something more than just acquiescing to a truth. It means actually embracing it such that it is part of you. How do you do that? This is this is a mystery, right? Well, when he was talking to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. But we're not going to go backwards. We're going to go forwards. He's going to say, so they said to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? No. <laughs> Excuse me, weren't they just there? Yeah. Not only were, you know, some of them may not have been there. They just might have heard about it. It's like... Yeah, the Burger King's in town. Let's go get free burgers, right? Um, but they're asking, what is it that I need to do to, um, to uh, ascend to this truth? In other words, what is it that, that I need to, um, to see and understand? And Jesus is saying, it's not just what you see and understand, right? Um, it's more than that. You have, to, you have to have something occur inside of you. So how do you tell that to somebody using English or using Hebrew or using Aramaic? How do you use language to communicate a foundational truth about how life is communicated? See, we don't have life in ourselves. We can't communicate life to another. Even though we experience um, the miracle of uh, a baby being born, Right, That is not our doing. We don't create that life in the sense that uh, a holy formed individual apart from us with uh, a soul of their own. We don't create that. God creates that. Everybody is created by God. Right? And now you see some of my theological bias. <laughs> because... There, there's lots of discussion about that. How is life actually communicated? Well, I'm going to say to you that life isn't communicated by anything within us because we don't have life within ourselves. So that means the only way life can be communicated is by one in whom life is in him, that has life in himself. 
and can give it to whomever he chooses, which is exactly what Jesus said about himself in the previous chapter. That just as the Father, God, has life in himself, so also the Son has life in himself and can give it to whomever he chooses. So we need to somehow appropriate that Son, that life, within us. But it's not within my ability to grasp it. I can't take it from Jesus. I could take the food that he gives, the, the, the loaf, but to actually grab that life. How do I grab that life from Jesus? He's offering it to you. How do you grab it? Jesus, he says whomever he gives. Right? That's right. It, it is dependent upon the action of God. He chooses to give it to whoever believes in him. That's right. So let's, let's read on a little bit and see what Jesus has to say trying to explain this perplexing problem, right? This is where the people are struggling. And they say, just show us another miracle, give us some more bread, and we'll, we'll understand that you can make bread. That they can't make any bread. It says, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. <clears throat> so they, their tradition and their uh, teaching tells them about an event that occurred where in the course of being delivered, the salvation of the Hebrew nation, <clears throat> in the course of that salvation, <coughs> God supernaturally provided for them nourishment. He provided this thing called, what is it? Man. Yep. What is it? Oh, what is it? That's what it is. <laughs> That's what man means. What is it? They, they couldn't quite describe it, but it came from heaven, and it, and it uh, sustained them. It actually uh, allowed their life to continue, even though they were in the desert. Right? And so they're, they're saying, you know, this is what our fathers ate. Um, then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is, um, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So what he's saying is, is that Moses didn't do the miracle. It wasn't attributed to a man. It was, it was God himself that he opened heaven and he provided nourishment and that that could sustain their life. He says, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So he's trying to take them from a place of understanding where they could actually touch the bread and put it in their mouth and chew on that barley um, to a place of understanding there's something more than just food that actually is the essence of life. That that life is really in the Father. He's the only one that has life in himself and he's the only one that can give it. Right? And what we understand is that the Son also, who is fully God, has that life that is the Father's in him. And he can give it to whomever he chooses. So there must be a way of getting from heaven to earth in order to communicate that life to people. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. It's like the woman at the well. Once she finally hears, it's like, oh, you're talking about something really good. I want it. Right? Jesus said to them, I am. He uses the name of God. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. So there's two things that are occurring here. There's a response to a calling. And then there is a transformation. And putting aside a belief in something that is not true and embracing uh, a truth that is real, that is true. So is he talking about soul food? Soul food? I found Louisiana. Right? <laughs> I mean, I had just, he just fed 5,000, and they're talking about bread. This yes. is an ag society. Yep. Uh, you know, and so he's, he's just saying, I'm the bread of life, and he 
believes in me shall never thirst. I mean, these are basic human needs. That basic all human needs. Yes. Everybody knows if you don't eat and you don't drink, you're going to die. But it's not really, I mean, it seems to me like it's not really saying what he's saying. He's speaking of soul, <laughs> you know. That's right. He's, he's trying to, to help them understand that if you have this other real food, that you won't die. So if I don't... But that's very practical, and I'm not sure why he's using that if he's really talking about... Like when he was talking spirit. to Nicodemus, he's trying to get us to so, understand... So Jesus, Jesus is going to make a statement uh, a little bit later in, in time in relation to uh, Lazarus. Um, and that um, Lazarus, his good friend, dies. And Jesus shows up and Martha says, you know, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. This is what this is moving towards. This is the public ministry, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read ahead, which is, I'm, I'm cheating. Okay? This is what we're moving towards. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Two things there. Resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's what we're moving towards. This is a, a key statement that if you believe in him and live, uh, or is, will live even if you die. And if you live and believe in him, you will never die. So Jesus is talking about something. Lazarus was in the ground, actually in the tomb, in the cave for three days. And, and by that time, he was pretty right, okay, according to Jewish thinking. And, uh, and here's a man who is physically dead. And Jesus says, no, 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 there's more to it than this. And that this food that I'm giving you, if you eat it, you will never die. And if you die, you'll still be alive. Right? I turn my page. <clears throat> Believes in me will live even if he dies. So that's what we're moving towards. There is, there is a tension that I can live in fear of death my whole life. That death might be the decay and decline of this body, which I experience every morning as I approach the further end of my life. It hurts more and more, and I know that many of you experience that. So, and I'm just a young pup, so uh, I can't imagine what it's like when you get right there. It must really, really hurt. It takes a lot of effort just to take a breath. <laughs> but, but, but that's a reality, right? So if I'm fearing, if I'm fearing the decay and decline of this body, which is corrupt, I'm gonna. If, if I'm living in fear of the de decline and decay of this body. I'm not recognizing what Jesus is saying is true. That when I am in him, when I have this embraced this belief, when I have had the life of God enter into me, because he has given it to me, and I have embraced him, I will never die. And that, that life is eternal. It's not just like what happened with Lazarus where there was a, a temporary resuscitation. And I say temporary because we don't know how long he lived after he, his physical body there was raised. But we do know what is promised to us is that we will have a physical body resurrected and that that body will be filled with life. He is the resurrection and the life. Right? That's what he's telling these people here in an agrarian culture where they understood bread. 
He's helping them understand what that Exodus story and that Passover was all about. So basically, he's using it as a picture. In as much as you need daily bread to sustain this physical body, right. he's trying to tell them there is a spiritual bread that leads to eternal life, not right. just this temporary life. Right. And he's trying to say, I'm it. That's right. He is it. That he is the one that is approved, that has the seal of God upon him, that through his death, and his resurrection will accomplish that transmission of life to God's creatures. The, the place that God intended for us was to be with him. So God didn't cr create all of this for the purpose of, and I'm not sure why that just went off, but it doesn't matter. Um, God didn't create all of this because he was interested in, in playing a game, right? He created all of this, and humanity in particular, because he wanted to have communion. He wanted to share his life. That's what communion is. It's sharing life. And God chose to do that. I don't know why he chose to do that. He didn't have to do that. He could have constructed any infinite number of of cool things, but he constructed this one and actually placed uh, eternal value on it. That the creatures that he created, he wanted to commune with forever. That's amazing. Why did God do that? And it, it's so amazing. You can maybe say this is something really good practically. This this message. How are we doing at being his ambassadors with this message? Because like it, it, should, it is a burden to me because the reality, you know, Jude, it says that every soul is standing before the gates of hell. Right. Dead without this life. And then in 2 Corinthians, he says, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are his ambassadors. God is making his appeal through you and me, through us. And we speak for Christ when we, we come back to God. And Yes. So that's what happens to the transformed. So we know him, we believe in him, and we abide. We, we continue a daily, moment-by-moment -moment communion, which is expressing his love to the world as ambassadors, so that others can come to know and believe. That's the whole purpose, that we'll know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in Him is eternal life. That's what John said is his whole point, right? And when he's, you know, he's recalling Jesus giving this incredible theology lesson about where life is and how it's communicated, and he uses the most base thing that everybody can understand, food and water, Right? And he says, I am that food. I am that which nourishes you that gives life. And uh, he goes on, though, and he says, But I said to you uh, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So he's challenging their unbelief. So he's saying, go ahead. He's in the synagogue. Is that right? Yes. Okay, because, yeah, this next ten verses seem like he's talking politically. Yeah, so he's he's in the synagogue, and so in the synagogue they have the reading room off to the side where they get the scrolls from. And at various times, you know, we'll see different accounts of Jesus actually picking up one of those scrolls and reading, uh, like he read out of Isaiah and stuff like that. So he's in that context. So people are in that place of rabbinical teaching. They're in that place of coming to God. So they've all of the trappings of religion are there. And he's telling them that, no, there's more to it than just the trappings of religion. It's all about me. Now, we like to think it's all about us, but it's not. It's all about him. And that's what he's saying. Uh, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So we understand that there is a drawing. That 
and so here, here comes my theological biases. <laughs> that apart from God choosing us, we can't know him. It's not within us. We don't have the ability. We are unable in our fallen state to in any way um, even think about God or consider him, let alone draw near to him and come into communion with him. We cannot do that. He has to initiate it. And that's what this is about. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is now saying that he is the bridge between heaven and earth. We saw that when he talked to to, uh, Nathaniel in chapter 1. And he actually recalled the story from Genesis about Jacob and Jacob's ladder, where Jacob had a dream and he saw heaven, the gates of heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending between the heaven and the earth on that ladder. We call it the story of Jacob's ladder. Um, What he told Nathaniel is, um, you will see the gates of heaven opened and stay open. They're not going to close again. They're going to be opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's helping now people to make this connection between all of the the, uh, object lessons that God has given them in the past, including the Exodus story and the Passover, to who Jesus really is. Apart from him, there is no way to get to heaven. Apart from him, there is no way to, to know the Father, to have life. He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? We're going to see that when he gets to his internal ministry. So that's what he's telling him. He's, he's telling him what he, so he's very consistent. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So this is the promise, the promise of the resurrection. We are promised that Jesus will not fail. That even if they kill him, which they did, they cannot hold him because he has conquered death. And not only has he conquered death, but he has the ability to give life to whom he chooses. So in 34 here, is he referring to us? Lord, always give us this bread. No, no. Um, this will have sent me that all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Yes. So, raise that. so what, what is the all that he has given me? Uh, uh, yes. 39. So, I hear the laughing. So <laughs> I'm almost out of time, right? Verse 34 just says, they send you, sir, give us this bread always. So, so well, you're, you're talking actually 39. I'm sorry. <laughs> so you're saying that uh, all that God the Father has given me, God the Son, I will lose nothing. <clears throat> so that means that there is, uh, there might be some that aren't given. Is that what you're getting at? Well, I'm, I'm just wondering if he's referring to us or if he's referring to something that to the Jews. Is it is it is it corporate or is it? Individual to the personal. I mean, that's that's one of the things when you start dealing with calling and election. It's like, who's God talking to here? Is He talking to me? Because if, if this promise isn't for me, man, I'm a hurting unit. This has nothing to do with us, though. This is this is what. Well, I I don't know that it has nothing to do with us well, because my confidence is given me, Jesus. Mm-hmm. I lose nothing. Right. So this is the will of him, the Father, who sent me, the Son, that of all that he, the Father, has given me, the Son, I lose nothing. So that means that there is a, uh, a, I'll I'll use the word dialogue, between the Father and the Son, a communication of the choosing of humanity. So the Father in heaven communicates to the Son who is the bridge between heaven and earth, that he chooses people for eternal life. And that the Son has the power, because he is fully God, not to lose a one. There's, there will be none 
that are chosen that will be lost. So that that means that God's choice of you is a really powerful thing. And when I say his choice of you, I'm going to speak now in personal terms and not corporate terms. So some would say that his choice is for all of humanity. Because that's God's heart, that all would come to know him and be restored to life. Which is what it says before For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So they'll have the resurrection, they'll have the life. Now, what do we know about further revelation from God? That not all will actually be saved. There will be some that are lost. Now, the, the question is, are they lost because, uh, because, because God didn't choose them? So, that, so now you get into... So I say that the power of this choice is really important. And, and wrestling with this question of election... And what he's saying here. So you're getting into some really deep theology. Yeah, this is the anti-challenge. Pardon? Well, you'll see see both in here. It has to do with the choosing of God. And yet the the heart of God is that all would be saved. That everyone would be the son and believes. Okay. So there, there are those, there are those that. Uh, and Karen, and that yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Karen wants me to close up here. You'll leave them hanging. But I want you to, I want you to know that this is the promise. It is the desire. It is the desire of God that everyone in this room be saved. Okay, that's that's what I read here. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. That's the will of God. And what that means to me is that there will be none who want to be saved that will not be saved. In other words, the choice of God is such that um, it isn't a matter of you choosing God and Him not choosing you. But rather that God chooses you and you choose Him. And that that choice of God for you is so powerful that nothing can break it. That you have um, your salvation is sure. And, and, and this isn't going to be satisfactory for you, and I know that. And we are truly out of time, but yes. we'll take this up next week. Because this was such a hard saying. He's saying, you are what you eat. You better be eating eternal life. Right? So you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what he says. He says, this is what it's about. If it's me, you better, you better consume me wholly. Right? Um, it was such a hard message that the people said, wow, I don't know I can call this guy. Christianity is a hard message. So when I was looking at the study of soteriology, uh, I googled it last night because I've done I teach theology and I've done a lot of study I've never googled soteriology so I thought well I wonder what what Wikipedia says about this right well they listed you know salvation uh, study of salvation among all the different world religions you realize Christianity is truly unique and it is offensive so we'll go into that more next week why is it so offensive it is so offensive that these people said man I can't do I don't want a part of this, except for a few. You know, and that one was Peter. He said, where else am I going to go? There's not life anywhere else. That's the story we're reading. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to dig into your word and to be challenged. Uh, I can tell that Tim is challenged. I certainly am challenged um, trying to understand both the nature of life, how that life comes to be within us, such that we will never die. How, um, how much do you love us that you would choose us in this way, that we can be sure of this, Lord. It's just uh, incredible as we mine your word and try and understand it and wrestle with it, uh, how it transforms our life. And Lord, that's what we ask, is that you would truly transform our lives, that we would live differently as a result of knowing you and living uh, daily in you. 
Lord, we ask that that would be the reality of our lives today. We ask that you would uh, provide for us as you provided manna in the, in the wilderness, that you would provide for us uh, daily sustenance, and that that sustenance is truly you, um, but it's also the provision that you've made for us in this world while we are still here, and that you would protect us in a crazy, dangerous world, and uh, we ask that you would bring us back this next week, if that's your will, um, to study your word further. Lord, we thank you for all this. We ask that you be with Pastor Bob this morning as he brings your word to the to the community at large. And Lord, we just ask that you would make us faithful and as ambassadors for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all this. We pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat>